you know, I think web three is a misnomer because this is not incremental over web two. This is a revolution of value instead of a revolution of information. It's fundamentally different. And it's built on the back of the fact that we have 6.5 billion smartphones in the world and we all live eight to 10 hours a day in borderless online worlds. And of course, those worlds are going to have their own economies, their own economies of money, of culture, of collectibles, of membership, of et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Of course they are. Of course, digital scarcity is going to get used in our digital lives. To me, it's like the most obvious thing in the world. If literally your identity is a digital asset, then self-custody and security are a must. Hello, everyone. This is Martin Hugh. Welcome or welcome back to another episode of the show. I just got back from Paris where I attended Ledger Open. Fantastic event and great announcement from the team with their new hardware wallet, the Ledger Stacks, which I also minted. And I'm very happy I got to meet and chat with the CXO of the company who happens to be the guest of today's episode, Mr. Ian Rogers. Ian has had quite the parkour career-wise, to say the least. He's worked in music tech since the mid-90s and built some of the earliest music-related websites. Throughout the years, he's worked with a wide variety of companies, some OG ones such as Winamp, to behemoths like Yahoo as well as Apple. At Apple, he spearheaded the iconic brand into music streaming services by successfully launching Apple Music. Seeking a new challenge shortly after, Ian joined the LVMH Group as Chief Digital Officer with the intention of developing the luxury conglomerate's online retail presence. After five transformative years at LVMH, Rogers announced his new position and current position at Ledger as Chief Experience Officer. Ian is a real rock star at heart. I got so much wisdom and insight talking to him. We go deep into user experience, adoption, his vision for what Ledger will bring in the coming years. And of course, true to his music background, we also talk about vinyl collecting and much more. I had a real blast recording this. Ian is a genuine, curious, passionate, but most of all, compassionate human being with a wealth of knowledge. So without further ado, please enjoy my convo with Ian Rogers. Ian, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I thought we'd start by highlighting a recurring theme in your career, which is culture. No matter which brand you've worked with, whether it's Apple with Apple Music or developing the online retail presence of the LVMH group, you've always been close to industries that act as pillars to culture themselves. Now with Ledger, you're effectively building a product for all crypto needs. It's no longer just about music or fashion or art. It's about everything that can be owned on the blockchain as a digital asset. Knowing that this technology will inevitably affect everything in culture, how do you balance having great user experience while still ensuring that the primary goal of security um, is, is being kept when dealing with self-custody? I think, you know, that's where it really takes a, a team in a village. You know, um, the, the culture of Ledger is that of security and self-custody. Um, and, you know, Ledger's been around for seven years and I, I've been at Ledger for two years. So that culture of security and self-custody was very well established at Ledger when I arrived. Now, Pascal Gauthier, who's the CEO of Ledger, he gave me the title of chief experience officer, particularly because, you know, he saw this opportunity you know, to do exactly what you just described is that, um, you know, digital assets are going to play a role in the average human's life in the future, right? Our belief 
um, fundamentally is that this moves from, you know, there's a new human invention here, which is digital scarcity. And we move from, you know, digital money to digital collectibles and all of the applications of digital collectibles, such as, you know, ticketing, memberships, uh, et cetera, you know, through to digital products. You know, I think that companies like Louis Vuitton will have, you know, digital products as part of their, um, as part mm -hmm. of their offering in the not too distant future, um, all the way through to digital identity, right? So if you fast, if you believe as we do that when you fast forward 10 to 15 years, your passport, uh, your government document is a digital document. And the way that you move borders is you prove that you are the owner of the wallet that contains that document. Then, you know, you, you believe that digital assets are as, as much a part of people's daily lives as the internet or your email address or, or, or these sorts of things. Um, so then you have to think, okay, what's the experience in using those? Right. And, and when you buy an Apple device, you're not buying a piece of hardware, you know, you're buying into the entire ecosystem, you're really buying the Apple experience. And, and that's really, if you think about it, what they've developed since the iPod, people forget that when the iPod came out, Apple stock was $10 and, you know, Apple had less than 2% market share. But what, you know, from the iPod through to the iPhone and all the way through to the AirPods, you know, Apple has built is, you know, this, the experience of using Apple. Right. And Apple right. was not first to be an MP3 player. They were not first to make a smartphone. They were not first to make Bluetooth headphones, but they are always first at making it, you know, kind of a mainstream experience. So I think, you know, that's what, what you, what you need to do. And, you know, really given that you, for me, the way I look at it is we are moving to a world where digital assets are a part of our life. But if that's the case, if literally your identity is a digital asset, then self-custody and security are a must, right? It's almost like, you know, you, you can't imagine having an iPhone that's not connected to the internet, right? And by mm -hmm. the way, your phones were not very good at the internet before the iPhone, right? Even kind of breaking that carrier model was one of the things that Steve Jobs did with, with the iPhone. The, you know, you, you're, you will not be able to have a personal computing device, which is fundamentally bad at digital assets in the future. Um, which is what we have right. today. You know, our, our computers and our, and our mobile phones are fundamentally bad at protecting digital value. I have to ask, building up on what you just said, you know, the value, let's say, of any, a brand like Apple is because everything is built around that device. So it kind of simplifies our lives to have all our experience, whether it's like listening to music or browsing the internet or calling people or storing our data in some ways. If we all use Apple, but everything is interconnected. It makes a lot of sense with the, just with the flow of the experience. Now, do you see Ledger as being a player that will work in that same fashion? Or do you see it as maybe partnering with other brands? I think there are lots of opportunities to partner. I think you could imagine, you know, mobile phones that are secured by Ledger. Um, but also I think the blockchain itself adds a layer of abstraction that means you don't need that same level of lock-in that you have in the ecosystems that, that we're familiar with, right? Where, you know, we, we know now that if the product is free, you are the product, right? Whether that's, you know, Facebook, et cetera. Um, and I think that, you know, it doesn't need to be the case that uh, you log in with Apple and therefore, you know, you've got blue chats instead of other, right? I mean, this is why 
we all use WhatsApp and I don't know or care what kind of phone you're using. But if I'm using iMessage, I know if you have an Android phone, right? Because you've got a green bubble instead of a blue bubble. You don't need that, right? We're moving web 1.0 was username and password. Web 2.0 was login with Facebook, login with Google, um, you know, login with Apple, right? Another way of asking the question is like the, the login box in web two should just say who owns you, right? And that's mm. who you, you know, if, if Facebook owns you, Log in with Facebook, right? You know, um, you know, but the future will be log in with your wallet, right? And that means you own yourself. You own your identity, right? For me, I've been taking my personal photos and minting them and dropping them in my family's wallet because I think the blockchain, the blockchain will outlive humans. I don't know if my kids are going to have access to my iCloud account 30 years from now. I know they'll have access to public blockchains, right? So I think that this is, you know, much more, much more where things go. Um, and I think that building on that layer is fundamentally different than building on, you know, the previous internet. Right? I, I actually don't think that, um, I, I don't, I really don't like the, the term web three because it makes it sound incremental to web two when I think they're completely different revolutions. I think the internet was a, a revolution of information mm -hmm. and, you know, blockchains are a revolution of value. And I think that there's a fundamental difference when you're building on top of that revolution of value. Um, and I think that these, you know, other companies will get there eventually, but they're kind of coming the other way around, right. Where, you know, you go in, you log in with your, your Instagram or Facebook ID, right. And then you go into your profile and then you connect your wallet. It really should be the other way around, right. I log into proof.xyz with my wallet and then I connect, you know, my Twitter as a second factor. Right. It's the it's exactly the other mm -hmm. way around. What gives me access to proof.xyz is the fact that I have a proof pass, a moonbird, et cetera, in my wallet. And then I can use Twitter if I want to as a second factor, but my proof, if you will, is is on the is on the blockchain. Right. It's right. not in a centralized database. I think that's I think that's much more what the what the future looks like. That's the world that Ledger is building for. Um, so I think that the concept of lock-in there is totally different. Right. I mean, I'm, I'm on the same boat as you. I, I believe in that. That's why like I've become increasingly involved in the space with web three, allowing for ownership of assets, you know, it comes with a certain sense of responsibility. The reason why, you know, we've relied on banks or centralized organizations up to now is because they do, uh, take off some of that accountability and responsibility from us but then they also take away some of our power and some of our ownership. My question is, do most people want to have that responsibility and how do we make it easier in the future so that people don't have to worry about getting scammed all the time? I think, I think people do want to have the responsibility. I think people would prefer to not, you know, be owned by, by big companies. Um, I think that there's, you know, there are some really big things at work here. Like if you read um, Balaji's book, the network state, um, you get to some of the biggest things that are at work here that we're probably moving from God to state to network, you know, and in that case, you know, you want to be a, a citizen of the network, you know, not, not only a citizen of the state, um, and that does give you power and it gives you, it gives you freedom. Um, I think also, you know, we, we want, we want access to, you know, to ecosystems that uh, are global and marketplaces that are global. We don't want to have to choose who to trust. Um, I think with FTX, you know, going away, I think that people understand that no one is too big to fail. And this is, it's not like this is limited to crypto. And, 
2000, you know, you know, the seven years before, you know, the, the housing crisis, you had Lehman brothers and then the housing crisis and then Mt. Gox and now FTX, right? I mean, this is nothing new. I mean, mm -hmm. every seven years, someone who is too big to fail fails, right? So as a user, if you can, um, you know, be protected and truly have ownership and you have a magic safe, which is really what a crypto wallet is, right? It's a magic mm -hmm. safe. Um, then I think, of course, you will, to be honest. Now, I think there's services that you can build around that then that make it much easier to use. You know, I think you can provide, um, you know, people seed phrase backup and recovery and some level of insurance against that, that, you know, allows you decentralization, um, you know, plus insurance. And maybe that insurance only goes up to kind of an FDIC level, right? Does mm -hmm. it cover you for 5 million? Probably not, but neither does FDIC insurance, right? But you know, still you, you, you know, you, you trust it enough to have a savings account, a checking account, a brokerage account, et cetera. Right. You know, so mm -hmm. I, I picture an ecosystem that looks a lot like that. Right. So in other words, right now I have the banking system where a run on the bank is possible, but you know, there's regulation that makes it unlikely if I'm in the U S as an example, um, you know, and I've got FTIC insurance, but, but that let's be clear, that insurance doesn't cover me with, you know, $5 million. Right. So, um, you know, if you have kind of self-custody plus insurance at that FTIC level and you kind of have multiple services and accounts and your, you know, your, your portfolio is hedged, you know, you're not, you know, everything's not in one bucket, um, you know, which is never, never a good idea anyway. Um, I think, I think, you know, I can definitely picture an unbanking system that rivals the banking system for the average person. You know, I think we talk a lot about um, banking the unbanked, but I think unbanking the banked is, is, is also an incredibly, you know, powerful idea. And I can imagine, you know, certainly the person I am today and the person I was when I was 25 um, doesn't need a bank account right. in, in, the way that, in the way that I used to. Um, and I think that that ecosystem only gets better and better and better from here. I think that's the other thing that you always have to remember, you know, and, and for me, the analogy always comes back to digital music, but, you know, I remember ripping CDs from the DOS command line <laughs> and, you know, now, you know, you say like, Hey Siri plays, play Slayer and Slayer starts playing out of your phone. Right. And, and so, you know, like that's, that's what happens over the next 15 years is that, you know, the ecosystem grows up, we get a lot of, you know, services around digital assets. And I think a lot of those put power in the hands of customers and you're right. Power, you know, comes with it responsibility, but you know, if there's an opportunity, then, then ecosystems, you know, arise, which create, you know, good tools to help make things easier for customers. I want to switch gears a bit and, um, touch upon music. Uh, I know you've been collecting, you know, records since the age of five. Do you still actively collect? I do. I got a shipment from vinyl me please last week. I actually uh -huh. tweeted it because I was like, I think this is the best one they've ever sent me. It was Check Your Head by Beastie Boys, which is a super important record in my life. A Miles Davis record, a Jay Dilla record, and a Towns Van Zandt record. Towns Van Zandt is probably my mom's favorite artist of all time. Maybe the greatest songwriter of all time. Um, and having them all in one package was an amazing moment. And then I went record shopping with my daughter and her friend this weekend. I bought some more things. You know, what was more interesting actually was what my daughter bought. My daughter bought um, Midnight Marauders by Tribe Called Quest. I was proud okay, of that. Yeah. Um, she bought College Dropout by Kanye. Um, mm -hmm. She's 16. And um, there was a, oh, she bought Fleetwood Mac Rumors. Who would have thought? I never would have thought that one. Um, <laughs> you know, but, but uh, yeah, I love, I love records. Me this weekend, I bought 
I bought a Gabor Zabo record. I love Gabor Zabo. If you never heard of him, like, like go deep. It was somebody that I like found through sampling a long time ago, but like now we just listened to Gabor Zabo a lot in this house. And I bought, you know, there was, there's these early Lee prayer or Bob Marley recordings that were, um, uh, that were recorded by Lee Scratch Perry. They're pretty well known, but I never had it on vinyl. So I got that. And then I got the very first Larry Coryell record from 1969. It was a record store day record. So anyway, yeah, wow. I still collect records. Yeah. I mean, uh, I, I got into collecting as well through my dad. Ever since I was a kid, he was collecting vinyls and really big onto turntables and everything and, you know, sound systems. And now it's funny because it comes back full turn because now one of my partners inside in my restaurants owns a record shop. So we play live vinyls inside our restaurants. Dude, that's great. I want to come up there and do that. Let's do that. Can I come spin some records in your restaurant? Of course. It's a, it's a Japanese snack bar. And yeah, uh, downstairs a, we have what we call a, a sound bar. Amazing. I'm, I'm in. Let's do a set of like only like rare Japanese jazz. Oh, that'd be awesome. <laughs> so music NFTs, I have to ask the question, what do you think about them and where do you see them going? Will they, you know, replace the need for more traditional music streaming services, labels, or will they just act as a way to augment the activities of artists? I don't think it will replace existing streaming services. It's hard for me to see that happening. I think, again, the way I look at this is that there's two separate revolutions. There's a revolution of information, which we've already experienced. And now there's a revolution of value. So things that were information are already unlocked. They're already freed, if you will. And music is information. You know, it's like media. It's like, you know, if, if music was kind of like going back in, that's like the toothpaste going back in the tube, you know? it's it's like It's like saying that, we were going to collect things, um, in our wallets instead of watching YouTube. Right. And I don't really think that's true. I think that there's something amazing about everything being available. Right. Mm. Um, and I think that that, that remains for me, you know, I have a hard time with, you know, kind of quote unquote music NFTs because I just see music as art. I don't see music as any different than say generative art in, in that in, in so many ways, the music itself is, but what I, what I really mean is I realize that Drake, Damien Hurst and Louis Vuitton are in the same business, right? They're all really in the branding business. And, you know, once you kind of get there, then for me, it's easier to see who kind of uses this new medium and this new creative canvas well, and who doesn't. And it creates new artists, you know, for me, I look at this as a revolution of value and a way for somebody who makes something creative to exchange value with somebody who is a, is a fan or a patron or a follower, if you will. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, you know, I, I think that, you know, like everything, you got to remember that recorded music is not that old, right. In human history, the business of music is a pretty new business, you know, 70,000 years of human history. And we've had a recorded music business, you know, since, since the early part of the 20th century. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so there's, there's nothing to say that like the way that we sold records on 78s or 45s or 12 inches or compact disc or cassettes or anything else was, was the right way to sell music. And then what we're doing now is wrong. Right. So I think that, you know, you've got to look at like, what is it that consumers want to do? Well, and, you know, there's a new David Bowie box set. It's like, you know, I don't know how many hours of David Bowie bootleg, bootlegs and outtakes. I saw the compact discs at the record store on the weekend. I didn't buy them, 
you know, but I did hit play on them today when I was walking home from the office to jump on and, and do this with you, you know? So what did I want to do as a consumer? I didn't want to collect that record. I wanted to hear it. Mm -hmm. Right. So that problem has, has already been solved. I think though, that there are other cases where, you know, I, you do want to collect something for some reason, right? There's certainly a price at which, you know, you and I are in to buy the one of one Wu-Tang record. Right. right. But I'd also argue that the fact that that one of one Wu-Tang record is an actual album that they made, is kind of circumstantial, right? If that was a one of one photo of ODB, I'm also in. If that was a, you know, one of Method Man's gold teeth, I'm also in, right? You know what I mean? Like, because what you're doing is you're collecting a story, you're collecting history. Um, so I think there's, I, I think that the, I don't, I don't see these things as necessarily the same. I think, you know, some people are storytellers and they can, you know, build stories and build value and build things that are collectible. And then some people just make music. Right. I see something, you know, really big though, I, you know. I was talking to a friend at, at Instagram and I was sort of playfully saying, I hope you guys make a lot of money selling digital collectibles, right? I actually wish Instagram was taking the same rev share as OpenSea and, and pushing it as hard as they can. And hopefully one day they will. Um, they've said they're only not taking royalties for a year. But the reason I say that is imagine if Instagram went from a business model, which I think is a crime against humanity right? Advertising is the act of stealing people's attention and selling it to someone else. Mm -hmm. And instead, you know, the business of Instagram was a value exchange between a creator and a collector or a patron or a follower or a fan. That's a really, really beautiful thing, you know? And like mm -hmm. Kevin Rose said to me last week, he's like, it's very imaginable. Imagine if, you know, tomorrow Kim Kardashian said, I'm posting this photo um, there's 500 of them. It's $5. And when they're sold out, I'm taking it down. How quickly right. would they sell? Right. I mean, you know, so you can actually imagine their business model completely flipping overnight in a way. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that's a great thing, you know? So, you know, when, when we talk about music and music NFTs, I don't think about quote unquote, like fixing the Spotify problem, you know, defined as artists don't make enough from, from streaming. I think that, you know, this, this revolution of value is a canvas and creative artists are going to paint on that canvas. Right. And just like, you know, when things changed from the 45 to, you know, the LP, not every artist made the jump, you know, when skateboarding right. went from vert skating to street skating, not every skater made the, made the jump, you know? Um, and it's, it's, it's like that art is yeah. like that. You know, and I think the same thing will, will happen here and we'll end up with a, a new crop of artists that are good on this canvas. I'm in the same camp. I believe that any platform that can give us outreach or like marketing capabilities, I think it's just a way to augment whatever we're doing. So I don't see Instagram or Facebook or TikTok as inherently bad. Of course, like as you mentioned, their business model may not be the best. And uh, in a lot of ways, like it's, it's playing on people's attention and that's how they're monetizing it. But inherently, if you're an artist, it's very smart to stay on those platforms in some sense, if they do bring you, you know, the attention to build your 10,000 true fans, so to speak, because if you're starting from scratch, you know, instead of going the old ways and, you know, like burning CDs and just distributing on the streets, 
you can actually go on Spotify or, you know, make content on YouTube or make content on TikTok now to gain that awareness in the same way. Now that people are building email lists out of that attention, you're just directing that flow of, of uh, potential consumers and fans into something that you can actually own in the future. Yeah. And I, I think that, that not being precious about that is kind of one of the keys to success at this point. Right. And again, that's why I, I actually really like the examples of Drake, Damien Hurst and Louis Vuitton. Um, because, you know, lots, lots in, in all cases, lots of people love them and lots of people hate them. And in all cases, they're all very good at using the creative mediums that are in front of them. Mm. Right. You know, I mean, Drake is great at Instagram. He, he's also, you know, great at making albums and he's great at, at playing live shows and he's great at OVO and he's great at, you know, the radio show that he did for Apple. And, you know, same thing, you know, lots of people would say, oh, Damien Hurst not, is not an artist. I would argue Damien Hurst is, is a master at branding and, you know, he definitely creates in the same way that Louis Vuitton creates, mm-hmm. right? Um, you have a team of people um, who create underneath a brand they use all of the canvases that are in front of them, you know, and some of them are, you know, our products and some of them are storefronts and some of them are, you know, Instagram, YouTube, fashion shows, you know, pages in Vogue, you know, the, there's, there's a lot of different canvases that they touch and they aren't, they aren't precious about, I do this one, I don't do that one. Yeah. They actually make, you know, artistic choices on how they use each one. And I think Drake is, is a perfect example of that. You know, he's never boxed himself in as being a rapper or a pop artist, or, you know, recently he just dropped an album that was almost like a house album. And I feel like he's touching upon all these genres and building so much attention to his brand. And that's, and that was, again, that was that revelation for me that, you know, that, that, that Drake Vuitton and, and Damien Hurst are in the same business. And, and that, that allows me to, you know, kind of go, yeah, you know what, if we think about it, like, what are we talking about here? We're talking about the fact that we live in digital worlds and we have digital lives, right? You and I are on different continents, yet we are collaborating right now, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So of course these worlds are going to have their own economies. And then if you think about what does it mean to be music or fine art or fashion, well, it's kind of hard to to say those things without talking about like the method of distribution, but digital just like makes those, the, the walls between those methods of distribution crumble, right? The wall between music and fine art and fashion, like kind of falls away, you know, it, it already has culturally, right. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you go to a Louis Vuitton show and it looks like a combination of music, fine art and fashion already. Right. Yeah. But then, you know, Oh, well you're supposed to put, yeah, yeah, but this is music because it goes on Spotify. And this is fashion because it's in a shopping mall. And but dig, with digital, you just don't have those same boundaries. You can go, yeah, this is music, fine art, and fashion. Mm-hmm. And like, why bother even saying that? You can just say, this is this. This yeah. is artist. And the artist could like represent all of those things. You know, you don't need to make those distinctions because I don't have to like, you know, build it out of wool versus you know, whatever else. And I don't have to say, oh, it can't be more than 72 minutes because it's got to fit on a compact disc or, you know what I mean? Like these, Mm -hmm. you know, these things are totally falling away. I loved it when on Life of Pablo, Kanye was just like changing the record 
every couple of weeks, people be like, Oh my God, Kanye changed the record again. <laughs> and I was like, yeah. why has no one thought of this? Why is, yeah. why is he the first person to be like clever enough to go, wait a minute, nobody's buying the compact disc or nobody's buying the digital download. Well, I'll just change it whenever I feel like it. Genius. Right? Yeah. I mean, um, that's, that's why, you know, he, he's such an iconic artist. And even though he gets a lot of flack now for the recent stories and whatnot, he still made such an impact on hip hop music. And I feel like Drake is the same thing. You know, there are people that are willing to think outside of the box and try new things. And, you know, when that album from Kanye, um, you know, 808s and Heartbreaks came out, I was like, wow, this is like a whole different way of seeing hip hop. It sounded like classical music in a way. If you take out all the lyrics and whatnot, like you could hear musicality in a different sense. Totally. I have to ask you, working with a company like LVMH in, in the fashion industry, and obviously it's, it's more than fashion, it's also a luxury brand that owns, you know, Moet Chandon, Hennessy. How has that been different working with them versus like your traditional music background, I would say? Uh, was there an adaptation process on your side when you enter these new environments? And how do you navigate innovation when working with their teams? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a... a- Big adjustment for me. I mean, and because for me, it wasn't just the sort of music to that. It was it was tech startup to that world. You know, in a tech startup world, you're just moving really quickly, and you know, no one, anybody who tells you they can see past six months is a liar. And then I came to LVMH, and they told me, "Yeah, we take a 100 year time horizon on our brands," and I and I was like, "What? I'm gonna be dead in 100 years? Like, what are you talking about?" But then I realized they're serious. Right. And what that allows them to do is to actually be quite deliberate. And I think that what's interesting relative to music is that they do artist development in a way that I don't think the music business does anymore. Um, I think maybe, you know, you definitely, if you look back into, you know, Warner Brothers records of the 70s, there was this kind of artist development. But, you know, and certainly in the pop music world, you know, you're as big as your last hit. And, you know, you kind of get one bite at the apple. And if you didn't, you know, if Billie Eilish, hadn't had hits on that first record, I don't know how they would have supported her second record. You know, I mean, I, I, and I'm not the one to say, but you know, you could, you could say like, well, maybe they, maybe they wouldn't have put so much marketing behind the second one, but having watched, you know, the way that LVMH develops, um, designers, you know, designers like Kim Jones, designers, um, like Jonathan Anderson, um, you know, in the way that they, they kind of like, they take their, they give them resources and they take their time. Um, you know, one of the few conversations I ever had with Virgil Abloh was right after he'd started at Vuitton. And he said, man, this is the first time in my career when my only constraint is time, Mm. right? Because, you know, time he couldn't change, right? But Vuitton had really given him all the resources he was asking for to achieve his creative vision, right? And that's a really beautiful thing to hear from an artist for me. I think there's definitely lots of cultural things I had to adapt to. You know, I'm not French. I, I didn't speak French when I, when I arrived here, you know, lots of just cultural differences and, and, and like ways of working, you know, are, are very different between the luxury business and the, and the fast moving, you know, tech world. But for me, I didn't find it difficult because I was, and still am, you know, proud to work with a group of people who value creativity Mm-hmm. And, you know, the kind of the end goal is shared, right? The, the, the investment thesis of LVMH is 
we put operational efficiency behind creativity. And for me personally, I've always seen myself as that executive producer sitting next to the creative director, you know, whether that was Adam Yauch from the Beastie Boys or Trent Reznor from Nine Inch Nails or Zane Lowe from the BBC, you know, that was, that was what I wanted to be. It was like, tell me your dreams. I'm going to try to make them real, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And so that is, that's sort of like the, the feeling at LVMH as well. And, you know, so even though there's a lot of like, cultural differences and ways of working, you get over those because you're, you know, you're trying to do the same thing at the end of the day. Let's fast forward to where we are today with Ledger. So you, you went from being in, you know, music tech industry, which was a very fast moving industry. And you plan more, let's say like as a startup, maybe you plan for the next six months or a year. And then you moved into fashion industry where they're planning for, you know, centuries and now you're back at Ledger where it's a, such a fast moving space, you know, Web3. I've noticed how engaged every community is. It's like a collective of sorts who gives you criticism and, criticism and feedback in real time, in perpetuity. Given your important role in the space, I'm sure you get a ton of feedback. How do you make sure to listen to users without necessarily being overwhelmed or getting steered off course? It's a great question. And it's not easy because, you know, the fun part is really serving users. And I've always felt that like what I loved most about, you know, my very first kind of really exciting software development job was running Winamp.com with, the, with um, Justin and the guys that made Winamp. By the and way, the cool- sor- sorry to interject. Winamp, that's so awesome. When when I heard it on the podcast, I was like, no way you were part of Winamp. I remember those skins and everything, the custom well, the, skins. There's only two responses to that, right? One of them is like, I don't know what you're talking about, right? And the other one is, oh my God, Winamp? You know what I mean? Like, so I appreciate that. But I really feel that personally too, man. It was incredible. I was with Justin in New York two weeks ago and like, he's one of the greatest human beings who's ever walked the planet. The guy is a gem. Um, but the... Uh, you know, what I remember is, is, you know, we had this, this Justin would do re- new releases of Winamp almost every week, at least every two weeks. And he would always send them to this email list first. There were like around a hundred people. I don't remember exactly, but around the order of a hundred people who kind of got the new version of Winamp before anyone else. And it was like, that was the whole job, man. It was like mm-hmm. serving those people. You know what I mean? Like, cause you'd get feedback. This is broken. We don't like this. What about that? And they're like, okay, well, what? now Justin always had like a great North star. You know, he knew, like, of course you could imagine like, why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? Why doesn't, why isn't it, you know, whatever. And and like, that's why he built plugins and he built skins because he knew there are some things that, you know, I'm not going to make a call if they're good ideas or bad ideas. I'm going to build a, a platform so you can do this. So really, I don't think Ledger is any different, right? If you think about it, you, you've never had software without hardware never in your life. Right. Like people always talk to us about like, well, what about software wallets? You know? Okay. First of all, like, you know, name, name at that time in your life when you started with software. No, you started with hardware. I don't care if it was your Commodore 64, your Apple two plus or your iPhone. Right. And when people tell me like, Oh, this is never going to work without, you know, software wallets. I'm like, okay, you're the same person who told me everyone's never going to have broadband and everyone's never going to have a smartphone and everyone's <laughs> never going to use Uber. And like, okay, shut up. I don't, I just can't listen to it anymore because when, when people have a need, they upgrade, right? Like uh, you and I didn't have these mics two years ago, right? You know, you know, when you need right. something, you buy some hardware for it, right? I didn't have this, this like light two years mm-hmm. ago, right? When you need something, you know, you, you buy the hardware you need to get the job done. 
duh. Okay. So now there's this, there's this, um, cycle. It's funny. I've been like working on this idea where I think it actually kind of looks like the arrondissements of Paris, you know, that are like a snail shell Yeah. because you start with hardware and then you build a platform on top of that. And then, and then you get services and then you get adoption and it grows and then you've got to upgrade the hardware. Right. And then you build a, you know, you've got your development platform on top of it and then you get services you know, tools, apps, services, adoption, and it grows. And then you've got to upgrade the hardware. And then, you know, look at Apple going, you know, from, you know, iPod to iPhone going from, from Xcode to Swift, you know, like that it, it tells a, a very similar story. So I think that, I think that's what you need to do. You always need to like keep your North star really, really bright. And for Ledger, it's always been security and self-custody. You know, what's amazing about Ledger is if you look at the initial prospectus for the company from eight years ago, it's basically the same as today. Mm -hmm. Digital assets are going to be a thing. Security is going to be a major problem. Self-custody is going to be important because if not self-custody, why crypto? And we must build security for self-custody, right? So our North Star is super bright, you know, so now we're just trying to do that, that snail shell, which is you build hardware. And then you build the operating system on top of the hardware so that you get applications and services, and then you get adoption. And then you've got to like go into the next kind of frontier of hardware. And then you, you know, make sure that you, that, that people can build on top of that hardware and then, mm -hmm. and then you do it and you do it and then, you know, rinse and repeat. Right. Um, so I think that's what you have to do. And then this is the, the challenge that anyone, Apple or Google or anyone faces, right? Like, you know, you think that's exactly what Apple does. At the same time, they build services, whether it's Apple Music like I built or Apple Maps that, you know, they kind of stumbled building. You know, you're still trying to build your own services and trying to build your own experiences and ease of use on top of that. And that's always a, you know, that's always a moving target, right? Because right. you definitely have to have an interface, a user experience. Um, and I think that we've all watched anyone who builds an operating system kind of, you know, struggle with exactly where that line is. Right. Um, but that's, you know, but that's just kind of in the job and the execution, I would say. But, you know, you're to me, you're still doing that same thing we were doing with the beta list at Nullsoft, which is, you know, building, listening. And then when you build, trying to build for a broad range of possibilities, you know, not the one I like versus the one you like, but how do we make both things possible? Mm hmm. Right. And if you can achieve that, then you're, then you're getting somewhere. And I think if you look in the, in the hardware wallet space, you know, I think the reason that, you know, someone asked me the other day, are there any of your competitors that, that you, you know, you think are building a great product. And the honest truth is I don't really have that in mind because I think everyone's either, they lack security. And so that means everything from your phone to a software wallet, to a browser wallet, you know, they all lack security. So to me, that's not a real competitor or they lack this operating system on top of a secure element, which limits you in terms of possibility, right? There's going to be a new application tomorrow and the device won't be able to do it because there's no operating system there and there's no development community and there's no developer environment, et cetera. So that to me, it's not because, oh, I don't like the form factor or, you know, I think their font is ugly or whatever. It's simply because if you don't have both security and operating system, then you don't have it. If we think about hardware versus software, is there another way to make Web3 secure other than just going the hardware route? 
because I feel like right now I'm very used to using my hardware wallet from Ledger. Uh, I just received the Proof Collective uh, Ledger as well. Thank you guys oh, for cool. that. I'm, I'm just wondering if we envision mainstream adoption, is it always going to be hardware? And is that the sole solution to preserve that layer of security? Well, the reality is, is that unless you have a secure path to the screen, then you don't have security, right? So the way I would look at this is, you know, in the year 2002, I had a, I'd already worked on the internet for more than 10 years. And I knew the internet was a huge part of the future human's life. I had a cell phone in my pocket. It was really bad at the internet, right? So I kind of knew at that point that I would have an internet device in my pocket in the future, but I knew this was not going to be the one. So that, that's exactly how I feel today. You know, I say 2002 because it was the year the iPod came out. So in that year, I had a cell phone that was really bad at the internet. I had a computer where I did the internet and I had an iPod, right? And I needed all three of those things to get done what I needed to do. Now I say that today because I've got an iPhone that is really bad at digital assets. So that's why I have my, I have it paired with my Ledger Nanos, right? Mm -hmm. um, same for my computer. I would not trust digital assets. You know, I would not trust my computer with my private keys. So therefore I keep those keys on my Ledger Nanos, right? Now in the future, might I have, you know, a device which is secure all the way to the screen, just like in 2002 in the future, might I have a phone that's much better at the internet? Yes, I might. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, you know, but, but again, like this is where like the hardware software thing is total misnomer, right? It's not that it's not like I have a, my ledger is a hardware wallet and my phone is full of software. My phone is hardware. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the screen on my phone is not secure. The input output on my phone is not secure. So another way to look at it is, you know, will I always do digital assets on a device with secure input and output? Yes, I will you know, might the phone I have in my hand get better at secure digital and out, digital input and output in the future? Yes, it probably will. I'm going to like throw something on the wall and it might seem totally stupid, but imagine if you have your iPhone and then under there, there's like that ledger that just fits there. Would that be a possibility? But that, that part would be offline from the internet or something, but Maybe no, that's something that could it's be It's actually built. not, it's not crazy at all. And if you come by our lab, I can show you some, you know, some things that look like this. The problem is, is that you, you do, you have to get into a secure environment at some point and you're not going to do that with the operating system on your phone, mm -hmm. period. Right. Because, you know, there, it's simply not the, you know, the, the screen and the touch are not secure. Right. Mm -hmm. So if you had everything you described and you kind of hard switched into you know, ledger operating system, ledger screen, you know, a, a secure element, which is connected directly to the screen, potentially, yes. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and, and we're, we're working on some things now that will, you know, that will get closer to that. Um, you know, but it, I think it really is like saying it's 2002 and, and the first iPod is coming out right now. And then guess what? The iPhone comes in 2008. Like that yeah, timeline right. feels, you know, that timeline feels pretty real to me. That's kind of how far we are from having a truly secure, secure phone. And by the way, I think that that phone will be a ledger, right? Um, mm -hmm. And I don't think that that's absurd, right? I mean, if I'd have, you know, if I'd have told you that, you know, in 2002, that that phone would be an iPod, you would have laughed and someone <laughs> would have said, no, it's for sure going to be Microsoft, right? But right. the reality is, you know, Microsoft tried to take a desktop computer and put it in a phone and Apple started with the iPod and worked their way up to the iPhone. 
right? Mm -hmm. You know, it's in the world of e-commerce, you've got, you know, Salesforce trying to, you know, make their full featured software easier to use. At the same time, you've got Shopify trying to make their easy to use software more full featured. I put mm -hmm. my money on, you know, on the, on the, on the underdog in that one, simply because it's easier to go from smaller to bigger than it is from bigger to smaller. Yeah. And also you have your ear to the ground. Like you guys are at all the conferences, you're getting feedback in real time from all the users of your wallets. So it's it makes kind sense of a classic innovators dilemma, right? I mean, Ledger sold 6 million ledgers, which is a huge number for us. Um, and it's a huge number for any hardware wallet. You know, if, um, if Apple had sold 6 million pairs of AirPods, they would have killed it by now. <laughs> right. Exactly. So, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's also, you know, it's a question of like scale and opportunity and being willing to grow into that scale and being willing to grow into those use cases, you know, as opposed to, you know, needing to have something much bigger uh, at the get go. Um, but there's definitely look, I mean, you could say this will this year will be the worst year for cybercrime every single year for the rest of your life. And you'll be right. Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, like this challenge of secure computing devices doesn't get smaller. It only gets bigger. The digital asset ecosystem doesn't get smaller. It gets bigger. The market cap of digital assets doesn't get smaller. It gets bigger. You know, so this is a, you know, this is, this is a 15 year, a 15 year journey that we're all on together. I want to be cognizant of your time. Do you still have like time for two questions? Yes, I do. Okay. What is one idea that you had that everyone thought was crazy that eventually turned out to be a home run? I mean, the most obvious one for me is just, you know, subscription music. Um, you know, in 2002, there were a few of us and I should mention Dave Goldberg, um, the late Dave Goldberg. Um, I should mention, um, uh, Mark Geiger. Um, you know, we were, you know, these guys running around LA saying subscription music is the future and it's going to be somewhere between five and $10 a month. And that was a very unpopular idea at the time, you know, and Rhapsody had started trying to do it around 2000, 2001, maybe, um, we launched a subscription music product for $5 a month at Yahoo in 2005. Then of course, you know, Spotify comes later and really figured it out with a much different go to market strategy. Um, and now it just seems obvious. It seems like, well, of course there's Spotify, right. Um, you know, but, but, uh, you know, and, and as, you know, as, as, Daniel Eckwood, I'm sure tell you, it was definitely not popular <laughs> when, <laughs> when we were talking about it. Um, so that, I think that's, and, and to be honest, that gives me a lot of, um, that's why I just really don't care. You know, I, I have no interest in sort of converting people to web three. I know what happens here. You have all the, all of the same people who told me in, you know, in 2000, when dot-com bubble burst, like, oh, the internet's over. It's for nerds. I'm never going to have a, an email address. You know, if there's an internet, it's going to look more like the old America online. Like I heard everything, you know, um, I had, you know, and, and also I was a kid at the time and they were people who were much older and richer and smarter than me. Um, and they're the same people who told me this. And so I, I think, you know, for me, it's just, you, you just have to, you know, go with your instinct and probably a lot of what we believe will be right. And a lot of it will be wrong. And, you know, you're going to learn that in real time, but, um, you know, it's, it's interesting the, um, that you mentioned America online, because I think it was on the previous podcast I did with Michael Stelzner, who is the founder of social media examiner one of the biggest like social media podcasts on Apple. And he was saying that like back then before WordPress existed, everything basically happened on America online. And then 
Web2 heights, uh, WordPress moment. And we're just waiting for Web3 to have that WordPress moment as well, where it's going to be so easy for anyone to create anything. Well, I think that, you know, certainly with FTX, we just, we just watched people realize that centralized is not actually better. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, to me, you know, it's, I mean, even people like Kraken and, you know, Brian Armstrong have been saying that, I mean, these are centralized exchanges who have been saying self-custody is the future, um, for a long time. And that, that reminds me very much of America online saying AOL.com is the future right? Because they saw the writing on the wall and they themselves wanted to be a part of this much bigger ecosystem. You know, even AOL who had kind of popularized the walled garden, they built their business on this, on this walled garden, but they, they saw they were smart people. They weren't dumb people. They, they bought Nullsoft in, in May of 99. And I worked there, um, you know, and they saw that the internet was, was going to be this big thing. And I think it's also important to remember, you know, in my career, again, I'm old. I, you know, I, I saw, I watched Microsoft try to be AOL with MSN. We watched AOL try to be Yahoo. We watched Yahoo try to be Google. I mean, Yahoo spent billions of dollars on their search business, right? We watched Google try to be Facebook, you know, Google, yeah, Google, what was it called? I can't remember. Google. Yeah, it was like a Google profile or I can't I even remember. remember now. I'm so yeah. sorry. I'm I'm sorry to my good friend um Bradley Horowitz because uh I can't remember the name of that product. Um, but this is my point, you know, and, and Facebook has done a pretty good job like actually being Snapchat or you know, or, or TikTok or whomever, right? They're like keeping the barbarians at the gate. But but this is natural mm-hmm. that you know that that innovations happen. Now, again, I would argue that. You know, I think Web3 is a misnomer because this is not incremental over Web2. This is a revolution of value instead of a revolution of information. It's fundamentally different. And it's built on the back of the fact that we have 6.5 billion smartphones in the world and we all live eight to 10 hours a day in borderless online worlds. And of course, those worlds are going to have their own economies, their own economies of money, of culture, of collectibles, of membership, of et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Of course they are. Of course, digital scarcity is going to get used in our digital lives, right? Right. Um, It's just, to me, it's like the most obvious thing in the world. And so, you know, what we're really doing is we're just kind of, we're building, that's a bit, a bit cliche, but it's also real again. And what I mean when I say that is, is not like just airy, let's build like a, you know, a call to action. What I'm saying is there's this distance between ripping compact discs at the command line and Hey Siri, play some Beatles, right? Mm-hmm. A fuck of a lot happened in those years. A lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, you know, you had to get like, all these things had to work together to get this critical mass of users. So the Beatles even wanted to be there. Right. Right. And then you had to get all of these other things, you know, connectivity, distribution, handsets, better, you know, more high powered machines in the hands of, you know, like there's this machinery that has to work. And that's what happens over the next 15 years, right. Is that these things build on top of each other and on top of each other and on top of each other. I think the, the optimistic, point on that is that with technology, I think it's like Moore's law where, you know, our processing is, is it Moore's law where the processing power always like it grows exponentially. So I think the speed of innovation also grows exponentially. I think the fact that, you know, even so early in the game, we see companies like Louis Vuitton or, um, you know, Gucci or 
uh, I know that you did a space recently with Farouk, uh, with Givenchy that are getting into space and they already see that, okay, there's attention here. There's potential here. They know what's coming in, in some sense as well. Well, I, and I think that's actually something that's very special about the way this happens. There's no such thing as crypto, right? The crypto is a collection of communities. There's a vibrant and important Bitcoin community, Ethereum community. There's still a vibrant Solana community, even after what just went down, right? And then you've got, you know, what the smaller communities. So to me, when I hear what you're saying, it's like, of course, the community is going to use the tools to serve the community. And mm. I think this is where people get tripped up. And I think this is why actually, you know, CNBC or, you know, these main or mainstream outlets are, will probably miss it until it's at critical mass, because what'll happen is it'll happen in the sneaker community. It'll happen in the Givenchy community and no one will be paying attention, right? They'll happen in the skateboard community. It'll happen in the generative art community. It'll happen in, you know, it'll happen in all of these places. Tools will get built. Tools will get adopted by communities. I remember with MySpace, MySpace was really used by the indie rock community at the beginning, right? It took it, you know, there's sort of the crossing the chasm uh, book about marketing. It's like, there'll be all of these things that take us. I think the communities will get us across the chasm mm -hmm. and then we'll be there because collectively it'll form a mainstream, right? You know, collectively you'll be able to, to do something. If you think about it, like Instagram is a great platform for this because Instagram, right. you know, has a lot of, a lot of, you know, creators connected to followers and they can kind of immediately turn that, that, you know, ad based economy into a, an asset based economy. And, and that could, you know, that could be a, a real catalyst. So, but I think that, um, yeah, I think that, you know, communities don't care what everyone is doing. I like when Seth Godin says you should find yourself a nickel anytime you use the word everybody. Yeah. There's just no such thing. And, and I think that if you under, if you really internalize that, then you'll be able to see the future much more easily because, you know, the Givenchy community, as an example, doesn't care about everybody. They care about the people that are in their community. And if people in their community are doing it, then they're doing it. I mean, ask any kid that's been collecting sneakers for 20 years. First of all, he's not a kid anymore. Second, probably a lot of his net worth. If it's not now, there was certainly a time in his life when a lot of his net worth was wrapped up in sneakers. Mm. Right. And he didn't give a shit what the rest of the world thought about his sneaker collection. He cared what other sneaker collectors thought about his sneaker collected. If you understand that, then you probably understand like what the future looks like way more than most. Right. Exciting times to build. And with that, I'm going to ask two final short questions. Um, I'm going to paint a broad stroke here, but for any builders out there, what makes a great user experience in your opinion? Well, I think it has to solve a real problem for, for a user easily. Make their life simpler in some way, right? So first of all, it can't be, you know, a, a, you know, a, a solution looking for a problem. It's got to be a solution to a real problem. And then it's got to be, you know, something that actually adds value to their life. And I think that that also means it's not just, um, you know, it's, it's got to be a set of things. I think Uber was a great example because, you know, in, I remember super well in, in the, you know, early 2000s, it's basically impossible to get a taxi in San Francisco. You would call this phone number and then you'd wait forever. And then sometimes you'd get someone and then sometimes taxi would come pick you up and sometimes it, it wouldn't. Mm -hmm. Right. So you know, but, but Uber wasn't like just a way to get a car, right? It was like a, a real solution to a real problem and it changed everything. It was like, oh, wait a minute. There's almost like this like virtual reality thing here where 
I can see this fake car driving toward me and, yeah. you know, and, and, and I get, I get all of this, all of this value out of it. I think that that's a great example of something that was very end to end. You know, it changed the entire experience. I went from not being able to cab, get a cab to get a cab. I went from having to have cash in my pocket to not needing to have cash in my pocket. I went from having this like pretty painful ceremony at the end of the taxi ride where I wasn't sure if I was getting ripped off and I wasn't sure if I was going to get my change back. And I worried that, you know, I didn't have enough cash to pay for the ride. And, right. and instead I just like got out and walked away. Right. Like, so I, I'd put use, user experience into that whole category. It's not just about like, you know, the, 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 the set of screens that you look at, you know, to, and I think to even, even the uncertainty of knowing, of not knowing a taxi would arrive and how much time would it take for them to arrive? I think Uber not only solves the problem of, you know, getting from one place to another, it solves the problem of like saving your time while you're waiting. Cause you can then oh. gauge, okay, I have 10 minutes left. I can do more stuff or I can, at least I'm not sitting here, like just waiting for that yellow taxi cab to, to well, arrive. And I know, I know plenty of people in Los Angeles that went from drinking and driving to not drinking and driving with Uber. Right. Right. You know, so I think that when, and, and I'm not saying Uber is perfect. It's not my point. My, my, my point is, is that there, you know, you go from like a real problem to a new solution. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and that's, you know, that's what you really look for. Like I look for that with the, you know, the credit card that, that we've just launched with ledger. It's like, what's the problem that you're solving? Right. Well, for some people it's that they want to off ramp, you know, it's like, I need to go from crypto to fiat. Can you make that really easy? Um, for some people they're like, look, I don't want to spend my crypto. Um, but I also, you know, want to live a bankless life. So, okay. So we offer, you know, a line of credit that's backed by your crypto and, and now you can spend. And as long as you pay your bill, you don't liquidate your crypto. You don't have a tax event. Um, but you're, and you're now kind of living, but you are, you know, you, you don't need a bank. You just need crypto. And now you've got a crypto back card and you can spend. Well, now we also know that people want to just earn Bitcoin in their daily life, right? Like I used to earn points, right? That I would use for travel or whatever. And we all know kind of what a scam that is. And, and, you know, but still I have plenty of times I've stayed in a hotel that I didn't pay for because of my credit card points. Well, but if you were to give me a, a an option, would you rather be, you know, taking those points and banking them as Bitcoin or would you rather, you know, have them as like magic points from your credit card company? I would choose Bitcoin, <laughs> right. right? So now, so to me, that's like, okay, there's, there's one thing, which is just a credit card, but then there's like, what are the real life problems you can solve with that credit card? But actually, I'll be honest. I think that the user experience um, that we have inside of Ledger Live with banks could be better, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, so it's, it's not that to me, the user experience isn't only like the, you know, what you see in Figma. Right. That's important right. by the way. And, and we need to like get better and better and better and better at that. And Apple sets a very high bar, right. That we chase. So don't get me wrong, but you have to solve, you know, real life problems first and foremost. How will the world be different in five to 10 years if Ledger achieves their mission? Well, I think, you know, again, thankfully, like last year when I was, you know, telling people about that, that self-custody was a must and if not self-custody, why crypto, they treated me like I was trying to convert them to veganism, right? <laughs> They're like, oh man, Ian, you're so pure. Like, come on. There's these great exchanges like FTX, like have a hot dog. Um, <laughs> you know, so I like, like, thankfully that's done. And I don't have to have that conversation again. Like people understand much better today that they should, um, that, 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 that if not self-custody, 
you know, why crypto? So I think that, that we will have the vast majority of digital assets um, with self-custody and not with custodians. You know, I think, I think also we will have shown that, you know, this is about security. It's not just about, you know, putting digital assets into a closet. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I think a lot of people think the use case for Ledger is, you know, I put some crypto on it and I stick it in my closet. And by the way, Ledger is great for that. I also have a savings account. I have a checking account. I have a brokerage account. I have all the credit cards in my wallet. I've got my Metro tickets. I've got, you know, I've got my driver's license. You know, I think that, that Ledger replaces your wallet, period. Right. Because not only is it your savings account, which is a ledger that, you know, is, is hands off and it's, you know, you're hodling your Bitcoin on it, but it's also, you know, where your art collection lives. It's where your driver's license lives. It's where your sneaker collection lives. It's, and it's probably the way that you log into things securely using FIDO2 as an example, right? So, you know, I think you'll have many ledgers in your life just like you have a savings account, a checking account, you know, you'll have a savings ledger, um, you know, a short-term ledger, a vault NFT ledger, a mint ledger, mm-hmm. a logins ledger, you know, and I open my login ledger and I click Instagram and that FIDO2, boom, securely logs me in um, to Instagram in a way that my phone, which doesn't have, you know, secure input and output absolutely cannot do. Um, so I think, I think that's, what's different now. I think you go out, you know, like we were saying kind of 2002 to 2008, you know, 2023 to 2029 and you start to get into the, like, I've, I've got, maybe I've got one device that my daughter can play clash of clans on or whatever the 2029 version of clash of clans is, (laughs) but I wouldn't have my secure data on that phone, my secure images, my text, et cetera. Those are on my ledger phone. That's what I would say. Well, Ian, um, thank you so much for your time today. I want to take a moment to acknowledge you because I think you're, uh, you're a curious mind in space that really pushes the boundaries of what's possible. And with Ledger being such a prominent educator in everything security, I really appreciate what you guys are doing. And I think you're a facilitator of culture. You help businesses, consumers, artists, and fans adopt new technologies uh, to, to connect and communicate. And you make them more accessible to perhaps... Uh, paving the way to making the user experience better. And, uh, you know, we need more people like you in the space that are constantly having an ear to the ground. And I, I feel like you're really doing that, whether it's via this podcast or even, you know, I've seen you at many conferences, uh, VCon. I didn't get to say hi then, but, you know, I see how involved you guys are in the space. And I think that's what we need as builders, because you know what the consumer uh, needs. Kind of like Winamp back then when, when you had that email list of 100 people. You know, you're really doing that, but on a, on a bigger scale with Web3. So uh, thank you for everything you do. Man, I super appreciate it. Thank you, Martin. I listened to your podcast. You're really, really good at what you do. I was super happy to come on your show because I thought you were a great interviewer. I really appreciate it. It's funny, like when I, when I hear your compliment, I, I, I really appreciate it. I, you know, I feel like, you know, like the, sta- the same stoner skateboarder that I was 25 years ago. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I just feel super lucky that, the way that I'm crazy is useful to anybody, you know, cause I, I feel like what I do, I wouldn't know how to not do it. You know, mm-hmm. I'm just having fun and, and, and doing what comes natural, being curious, working hard. I mean, I'm from Indiana, so I work hard and, um, it really feels really nice to hear somebody, uh, say they appreciate it. So thanks, man. I re- I appreciate that. Of course. And, uh, thanks again for coming onto your show. Of course. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. 
that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, please consider leaving a review for me. Um, it's always super helpful to get that kind of feedback uh, of what I'm doing right, what I could improve. And uh, so if you can take 13 to 35 seconds of your time to share some thoughts with me, I really appreciate it. Thank you again for listening. And uh, until next time.